Well, good morning. We now turn to the part of our live stream where we will be opening up God's word together. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to uh, open those up now. We are in the Gospel of Luke this morning. As we begin our time in God's word, uh, let me turn your attention to the consideration of our, um, our, our current situation in our nation. We are in another election cycle. And we're at a time in the life of our country where we are considering who should our leader be or answering the question, what kind of leader do we want? What kind of leader do we want? There's an interesting distinction in God's word, a distinction that we see in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, where God makes a distinction between a leader that the people want, uh, Saul ends up being that first king, the leader that they wanted and expected, a leader, a king, just like the nations had. He was tall, he was handsome, and he led them in great victory and great battles. But at the end of the day, while Saul was the leader that the people wanted, it becomes clear with time that he was not the king that the people needed. In our passage this morning, in the book of Luke in chapter 9, we are going to be seeing the disciples of Jesus thinking that Jesus is the leader that they want. They have come to the conclusion that Jesus is a lot like them. They appear to think that they know him well, that he is a, a more powerful and uh, a more uh, authoritative extension of themselves. But as we see, as we will see in our passage this morning, Jesus is not like his disciples. Our passage this morning shows how different Jesus is from his disciples and how different he is from us. And I pray that this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 9, verses 49 to 56, I pray this morning that we would see that while Jesus may not be the leader that the world wants, he is exactly the deliverer that the world needs. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at 9, 49 to 56. And as we return to the study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, let me get us up to speed in terms of context. Luke chapter 9. We're in the middle of Luke's Gospel. We are actually this morning starting the second half, the second part of Jesus' earthly ministry. In the first part of Jesus' ministry, he's been demonstrating his authority through his teaching and his miracles. It isn't until here in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus finally makes it crystal clear who he is, that he is this long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And his disciples are beginning to grasp this fact, that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, possessing all authority to save. But just as his disciples are grasping this fact, a tension begins to arise between Jesus and his own followers. The disciples' expectations for their Messiah begin to come into play. Not only that, the disciples also have expectations for themselves as Jesus' inner circle. They, these disciples have clear ideas about what place they think they should have in the Messiah's kingdom, what positions they should hold as his officers or lieutenants. In contrast to the disciples' expectations of exaltation, Jesus is teaching his followers that though he is David's heir, 
he has not come now merely to rule on David's throne. He has not come to destroy the government, but to suffer and die at the hands of the government. Why has he come to do this? In order to abolish sin and death for his beloved ones, those who would place their faith and hope and trust in him alone. This is so far outside what the disciples expect. They cannot grasp it. They seem to have no ability to comprehend a Messiah who dies. They cannot understand a king with all authority laying down his life in apparent defeat. And so, though Jesus tells them over and over that he will suffer and die, the disciples are in denial and they continue to run up against how different Jesus is from their expectations for him. In the last sermon in Luke, we saw the disciples arguing over who among them was the greatest. They are in competition with each other for position and power. And this brings a rebuke from Jesus. In contrast to his power-hungry disciples, Jesus shows himself as the great and humble king, here to show mercy, humility over competition. We saw the last time, the greatness of the humble king. We spoke in the introduction how different Jesus is from his disciples and from us. And in our passage this morning, we will see, and this is our main point if you're taking notes, Jesus teaches his disciples to desire reconciliation over division and mercy over vengeance. Say it again, Jesus teaches his disciples to desire reconciliation over division and mercy over vengeance. Our passage follows the controversy over greatness. So we will pick up back in verse 46 for context, and we'll have two points this morning. Reconciling love, point number one, and merciful love, point number two. Reconciling love, point number one, and merciful love, point number two. I pray that this morning we would be in awe of Jesus uniting and merciful love. As we begin point number one, reconciling love, which will be verses 49 and 50 of Luke 9, I will begin by reading the part just before this, Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48. This is God's word. An argument arose among them, that is, Jesus' disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. We looked at Luke 9, 46 to 48 in the last sermon on Luke. For context, there's great irony in this section. Peter, James, and John had just witnessed Jesus' glory unveiled at the transfiguration, a glimpse of the greatness and glory of Christ, a glory that had been veiled or hidden in his humanity, in his incarnation, but for a moment was revealed to them. In what follows, the crowds are also recognizing Jesus' greatness, verse 43. And then in verses 44 and 45, Jesus reminds the disciples again that his greatness would be demonstrated in his innocent death at the hands of guilty men. So on the one hand, we have Jesus demonstrating his great and total humility, the greatness of the humble king. And on the other hand, we have the disciples arguing to figure out 
which of them is the greatest disciple? Which of them will have the highest position in Christ's kingdom? Jesus responds to their argument with a kind rebuke, a loving rebuke. And the rebuke comes in the form of an illustration. Jesus takes a child. He puts the child before the disciples and he teaches them that striving for status, position, or what people can praise you for on the outside is not going to equal greatness where it really counts in the eternal kingdom of God. No, greatness is seen in humble service to the least members of Jesus' kingdom. Greatness is seen in humble and often hidden service to the least members of Jesus' kingdom. By receiving a child, weak, helpless, in Jesus' name, we receive Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches about the final judgment and how Jesus' true disciples will be recognized in contrast uh, with uh, the unrighteous of this world. Jesus says this, at that time that is in the future, on the last day, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, Jesus' true disciples are recognized not by their high positions or elevated status. Jesus' true disciples are those who love like he loved, with humble love, attentive to the weakest members of Christ's kingdom. In verse 48, Jesus says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The least among us is the one who extends to care for the weakest and humble service. But Jesus says that person, in fact, is great. For we are like the little child, weak and helpless, and we have been loved by our king through his humble death. Though Jesus is strong, he's not used his power and position to dominate. He's come in strength to lay down his life for those who are weak and helpless. And we show that we know this humble king as we begin to imitate his humble and attentive love. Now, our section comes on the heels of this passage. Jesus has been teaching his disciples that rather than competing, they are to humbly serve. Rather than making distinctions among themselves with debates about who's the greatest, they are to be receiving each other in Jesus' name. And this reminds John, one of the disciples, of a recent event that he brings up to Jesus' attention. Do you see that in verse 49? It says, John answered Jesus. He's responding to this teaching about true greatness being humble service. And John appears to be sensitive in his conscience about something he and some of the other disciples had done. Let's read verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. John recalls an event where the disciples come across a man casting out demons in Jesus' name, but this man was not one of the twelve. 
Now, the 12 had been commissioned by Jesus in the early verses of chapter 9 and given power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And the disciples then come across another man doing the same things that they were commissioned to do, casting out demons in Jesus' name. We can almost hear their thoughts. Wait, that's what we were commissioned to do. Who does this guy think he is? That's our job. Who gave him the right? And then we see their response to this man's ministry. Stop it. Stop doing that. And the reason? Well, John says, because he does not follow with us. Or in other words, he's not one of us. He's not one of your followers, one of the 12. And how does Jesus respond to the disciples' actions here? He rebukes them. This is a theme that holds these sections together. The disciples do something, and Jesus lovingly rebukes them and shows them himself and shows them a better way. Jesus tells them, verse 50, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The fact that this man is not one of the 12 does not mean that his ministry in Jesus' name is illegitimate. And in fact, Jesus has plans to save many, many more in the days to come. And he will commission many, many more to take the gospel of the kingdom to the world. For he has, According to John 10, 16, other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The disciples have made division where there should be unity. And this unnecessary division is a common problem among God's people. We want to divide where God has united. We are prone to building walls where Christ has torn them down. Christ has come to earth in a very real sense to divide. He will say a few chapters later in Luke 12, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Such division will happen over Jesus. He will divide families and friends. He will cause division. And he himself will divide the world at the end of time, as we saw in Matthew 25, into two groups, his disciples on the one hand and his enemies on the other. And so, yes, it is true that Christ has come to divide. But Christ has also come to unite. Christ has come to reconcile. You see, there was a division in place that Jesus came in love to address and to heal the very real divide between the holy God and sinful humanity. This is the wonder of the gospel message that Jesus Christ, God himself in human flesh, came to earth to address the divide that existed between God and men. What is this divide? Well, it's the divide of our sin. You see, the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned against their holy creator God. Rather than serving him humbly and worshiping him and enjoying him forever, they set themselves against God. They rebelled against him. They sought to dethrone him from his throne and to set up themselves as rulers in his place. And because of their great sin, they were cast out of God's presence, that 
garden paradise. And from then on, the relationship between God and man has been divided. And all of the children since then, which includes you and me, all of us have been divided from our creator God, no longer in fellowship with him. This is why Christ has come. He's come to heal this divide by uniting a people to God, by being the mediator that we need. He's come to reconcile sinners to a holy God. This is the wonder of the gospel message. And this answers the, the question, how can sinners like us enter into the presence of a, a holy God? I remember witnessing to uh, a, a, a Hindu man in Dubai, and I remember him asking me the question, how can we get clean? How can we be clean so that we can be in a relationship with God? And that's the question that Christ has come to answer. He has come to unite us as sinners and reconcile us with our holy God by laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He took the punishment that our sins deserved so that we can be united to our creator God and again, enjoy the relationship with him that we were created for. <clears throat> this real divide, the one between God and sinful humanity is at the heart of all other division that we see on earth. You see, there is a great divide, the divide between humanity and our creator God, but like a great river that divides into smaller rivers and streams, the great river of our division, our enmity with God leads to many other divisions. We are separated in our human condition and we are divided from each other from that first sin. We set ourselves not only against God, but we have continued to set ourselves against each other. We divide along every imaginable line, lines of culture or ethnicity, lines of nation or heritage, lines of gender, male, female, lines of status, affluence or position. Anything that can divide humanity has divided humanity and such division has marked every one of us. But Jesus has come not only to reconcile broken and sinful humanity with God, he has also come to unite to himself, in himself, a people drawn from every tongue, tribe, and nation to be his own possession. You see, we are prone to unnecessary division like these disciples, even in the church. It's sad but true, but it should not be the case. As Galatians 3, 28 puts it, because of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Why? Because those divisions that separate us have been brought down. You are all one in Christ Jesus, the verse says. It is then our calling as Christians to seek unity in the body of Christ, to seek as much as depends on us to pursue love and unity with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there will be times when for reasons of doctrine or reasons of sin, we must sadly divide from the unrepentant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that divisions in the church for reasons of doctrine or sin are necessary for the purity of the church. But we should always have the heart of Christ for one another. Jesus prayed on his way to the cross in John 17. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is a day coming when we will be united fully and finally with our God and with his people forever. Finally, home, all divisions gone. And in the meantime, we have an opportunity now to show the world the love of Christ by the way we live in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. This unifying love should mark us in our relationships with each other. This should be the case in our church, First Baptist Church. If there, are anything, if there is anything that divides you from a fellow member, let me encourage you to pursue it, to pursue reconciliation. This unifying love should uh, be at work even in our members' meetings, like our meeting tonight as we gather together to conduct our family business. Let me encourage you that uh, to, to, to work towards having our members' meetings being unifying meetings where we show unifying love to one another. We are to delight in our reconciling and our uniting Savior, and we are to seek to imitate Him in our relationships with each other. That's point number one. Point number one, reconciling love. Point number two, point number two, merciful love. We'll be looking at verses 51 to 55. Let me pick up in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Luke highlights at the beginning of this section that the days are drawing near for Jesus to, quote, be taken up, verse 51. This phrase, taken up, is a way for Luke to describe Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. As the days were drawing near for Jesus to head to the cross, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is where Jesus' ministry shifts. His ministry shifts geographically as Jesus now begins traveling from Galilee all the way down south to Jerusalem, where he would be killed. But Jesus' ministry also shifts, not only geographically, but also theologically, as everything he does from now on happens under the shadow of the cross. The first thing that Jesus does after setting his face to Jerusalem is to pursue Samaritans. He sends messengers ahead of him to Samaria on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, in the middle is Samaria. So he sends messengers ahead of him to Samaria to make preparations for him. Verse 52, 
but the Samaritans refused to receive Jesus, verse 53. Why? Well, because he had set his face toward Jerusalem. A little bit of context is needed here in terms of the Samaritans. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom that had divided from Judah in the Old Testament. So the northern kingdom was the ten tribes in the north that had separated from uh, Judah and Benjamin in the south, the southern kingdom, after Solomon's death. And after the exile of Israel, the northern kingdom, the area of Samaria, became populated with a mix of Jews and Gentiles who had intermarried with one another. So great hostility between Jews in Judea and Jerusalem and the Samaritans in Samaria had been there ever since. The Samaritans had resisted the returning Jews who came back from exile, and they'd even opposed their work in restoring the temple in Jerusalem and the city walls. And the Samaritans themselves had uh, developed their own mixed religion centered in their worship, not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. This hostility between Jews and Samaritans came to a head in the second century BC when Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim in an act of warfare. Jews called Samaritans half-breeds and dogs. When the Jews wanted to think of a serious put-down, they called Jesus a Samaritan in reference to the scandal of his miraculous birth. So to summarize, Samaritans and Jews hated each other and the hostilities ran deep. But Jesus, the reconciling Savior, seeks to minister to the Samaritans. And the disciples always seem surprised by Jesus' interest in ministering to Samaritans and Gentiles. But it looks like some of the disciples go as messengers to prepare an audience for Jesus in Samaria. And how do the Samaritans respond? They reject the offer. They reject both the messengers and the sender, Jesus. Why? Well, it says because he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, it looks like they found out that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And because of their differences in religion and in culture and in background and the hostilities that existed between Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim, these Samaritans have want nothing to do with this Jew, Jesus, who is seeking to speak to them. Now, remember back in verse 48, Jesus taught that by receiving Jesus, we receive God the Father who sent him. And in verse 5 of chapter 9, when the disciples were commissioned to preach and to heal, Jesus taught them, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus had told his disciples if people refuse to receive me, they're refusing God. And he also said, if they refuse to receive you as a messenger of me, they are refusing me and God. And that you should shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them, as proof that they have rejected God and God's message. And so what do the disciples recommend? They've been hurt. They've been rejected. Do they recommend shaking off the dust from their feet as a testimony against the Samaritans? No, it looks like those hostilities run deep with the disciples and they want something more, something bigger, something louder, 
something more violent. They want Jesus to have a ministry like Elijah, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, one with fire from heaven destroying these rebels. They deserve it. They've rejected you. You see that the disciples have an overactive sense of justice here when it comes to people that they have a prejudice against. And how does Jesus respond? Another rebuke. Why the rebuke? Why the rebuke? Well, interestingly enough, the disciples are not wrong. They aren't wrong. These Samaritans do deserve judgment. They have rejected Jesus. But while they're not wrong, they're not right either. Because their vindictive attitude shows that they've misunderstood two things. They've misunderstood their own sin. They've misunderstood what they deserve from a wrathful God. And this sword that they're wielding, this sword of violence and judgment against the Samaritans, if they want to wield that sword of judgment, it's going to fall on them too. It's a double-edged sword. But it shows that they've not only misunderstood their own sin and what their own sin deserves and their own need for mercy, it shows that they've completely misunderstood the mission of Christ. Christ has come not in this coming to bring vengeance of a holy God against sinners, but he's come to show mercy and kindness to sinners. He's come to lay down his life for rebels. And he has a plan, not just to save Jews, not just to save those on the disciples' team, but to save Samaritans too, and even Gentiles, to save for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation from all over the world. He would then tell his disciples in the book of Acts on his way back to the Father that you will be my witnesses in Judea, that is Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but not only in Judea, but in Samaria too, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, while the, the Samaritans would reject Jesus here, Jesus would demonstrate his patience with these rebels, though they deserve judgment. He had a plan to save some Samaritans in the days ahead, and he was demonstrating his patience here now to show that he has a merciful love and that he's come in mercy towards sinners. I wonder this morning if you, like me, can tend to have an overactive sense of justice when it comes to other people and other people's sins. We live in an incredibly divided age and in an age where our sense of justice seems to be getting ratcheted up tighter and tighter. We seem to be getting louder and even more violent when we see injustice and we get excited to see justice accomplished. There's a sense in which that's right. When all of us see injustice, when we experience injustice, we long for justice. But the problem is that too often we aren't a very good judge of what justice looks like. We aren't too often a very good judge of where is the line between what is just and what is too far in a response of cruelty. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What are we to do when we experience injustice, when we see injustice in this world? Well, we are to leave justice in the hands of our just God, and we are to be grateful for our merciful Savior who did not wield justice when he came to this earth the first time, though he will the second time. But he came to show extravagant mercy to sinners like you and like me. You see, our merciful Savior has come in mercy, offering a merciful love to those who did not deserve it. This is the thing. While the the disciples are right that these Samaritans and rebels deserve God's judgment, so do we, so do you, and so do I. The wonder of the gospel is that while we deserve judgment and justice, while we deserve God's vengeance, he has sent Jesus to bring to us a merciful love. This is the wonder of the gospel message, that though we are sinners, though we deserve judgment from God, though we deserve rejection from him, and though we deserve to be cast from his presence and to be punished forever, Christ has come to show mercy, and he's done this by laying down his life and taking upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve so that he would show mercy to sinners like you and me if we would repent from our sins and cast ourselves on Christ and receive from Christ, not justice, but mercy, and receive through his injustice on the cross, being killed for sins that he never committed that he would be able to offer to us forgiveness and his own righteousness, and that he would be able to reconcile us with our holy creator God. I'm not sure what hurts you may be carrying this morning or what ways people have harmed you, and I'm not sure what Christ might ask you to endure in terms of rejection or persecution for his sake. But what I can do this morning is point you to your Savior. As we've been studying in 1 Peter in our midweek Bible study, something I'd invite you to join us, uh, join us with on Wednesday evenings. In 1 Peter, Peter, who was part of this inner circle of Peter, James, and John, has learned this lesson of not enacting vengeance on sinners, but being patient even with rejection. And he tells uh, these churches in Asia Minor, this is a gracious thing you do when mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what? Oh, and then he says in verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed. Look upon our merciful savior. Look at his patience. Even when he is reviled and rejected, even when he is mistreated at the hands of wicked men, He does not revile in return. When he is crucified, he prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He is full of mercy for all kinds of sinners. 
And that gives us hope, hope of an eternal salvation through our merciful Savior. But not only does this give us hope in terms of our salvation and in terms of our eternal home, Peter says he gives us an example to follow, and he calls us to follow in his steps. And this means that we are called as Christ's blood-bought people who've received mercy from him to then extend such mercy to others, even our enemies and even those who harm us or mistreat us. This is the way of the Christian. So in conclusion, we have considered our uniting, uh, the uniting love of our Savior and then the merciful love of our Savior. And how are we to live as citizens of this Savior's kingdom? Well, not in competition, but in humble service. Not in unnecessary division, but in reconciling love. Not in vengeance, but in mercy. It may be that Christ is not the leader or the redeemer that you think you want, but know this. He is the redeemer. He is the deliverer that the world needs. Would you have him as your savior? Would you follow him as your leader? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for Christ, that he is a savior who serves us in humility, that he is a savior who reconciles us in love back to you, that he is a savior who doles out not vengeance on sinners who turn to him, but mercy. We pray that we would cling to this Christ, and we pray that we who know Christ would follow him and follow his example today, tomorrow, and forever. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.